Please remain standing for today's scripture reading, which comes from John 6, 47 through 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we look at this passage this morning and think about eating the bread of life, we want to consider the difference between fizzling out and finishing well. The difference between fizzling out and finishing well. There's lots of ways you can see that distinction play out. I'm always struck by some of the the banners that show up on various websites, and one that, whatever this says about me algorithmically, that shows up regularly is uh, this news feed of Olympic stadiums that used to be glorious and grandiose and huge and remarkable and now are depressing doldrums. They are abandoned. They are slums. Uh, they are nothing of their former glory. And so you can click through these various slideshows on the web and you can see stadiums meant to seat 100,000 people to take in the most remarkable feats of Olympic athletic performance, and now they are seeming cesspools. They're abandoned. Uh, They're not cared for. They're overgrown. Uh, They're dilapidated. And lest we laugh at those cities that spend money like that, of course, we can journey just up the road to I-4 and observe our own eyesore, something that stands there as a reminder of how starting strong doesn't guarantee a good result. You've got to finish well rather than fizzle out. Well, Ben already mentioned how in our own lives we can easily fizzle out. We can commit ourselves to a diet, to some exercise regime, to some new spiritual discipline, to some practice, uh, to some rhythm to some new schedule. I'm going to wake up an hour earlier this year. I'm going to commit myself to that task. I'm going to budget more carefully. And we're, what, six weeks in, and I can assume that had we had a time of confession this morning, many of us could have confessed a number of things that have fallen by the wayside. A number of strong early commitments that sounded really good and that somehow have sort of frittered away. Well, this passage gets at that kind of concern. It's a concern that that all of us feel in big and small ways. Uh, Nassim Taleb in his book, Anti-Fragile, talks about how we all butt up against things that are difficult and challenging, that point out our need, that give us a a sign of, of struggle, 
of being overwhelmed by some challenge, uh, by realizing that we don't have a capacity or we don't have a resource, by realizing that we're being assaulted or challenged, we're being opposed by someone. And he describes how most of us, most of the time, we tend to behave in what he calls a fragile way. We experience that, we, we come upon something that is difficult, and we back away. We keep our distance. Sort of uh, the, the, the fight-or-flight kind of capacity typically leads us to, to back away. He describes how, at best, most of us commit ourselves to resilience. I'm going to be challenged, I'm going to feel the difficulty, I'm going to realize, I'm going to own up to the fact that it's, it's hard, but I'm going to gut it out for some greater reason. I'm going to stick with it. Uh, I don't want to give up, maybe. I don't want to become the kind of person who, who quickly gives up, or there's some other good and reward. For one reason or another, I'm going to stick with it. He describes, however, how the greater way, the way that actually brings maturity and growth, is to be what he calls anti-fragile. Someone who doesn't merely resiliently stick with it, but actually realizes that the challenge, the need, uh, the, the difficulty is meant to grow us, is not merely an occasion to get over, but is also an experience through which we can develop strength. And this passage describes ways in which people experience difficulty and challenge. Many of them, by the end of the chapter, have frittered away. They have fizzled out. Their faith is gone, it seems. Others have leaned in still further. They have depended a bit more upon Jesus. And by listening to him, and by depending on him, by opening wide their mouths and extending their hands in an open manner, they have actually grown through challenge. So I want to explore that with you this morning as we continue thinking about what's, what's faith, what's belief, and how do these different metaphors that are found in the gospel according to John, how do they explain for us? How do they help us better imagine the Christian life as a life of faith? There's two things I think we could ask of this passage. And uh, each of them illumines something absolutely significant about belief. And the first question we could ask is, what does this passage reveal to us about the living and true God? We come with expectations about what a God might be like, but what's found here that actually tells us what the real God is like? Who he is, what he does, as Ben mentioned, what are his signature moves? And the first thing we see is that this is a God who provides bread for the journey. This is a God who provides bread for the journey. Now, the verses that Hannah read come in the middle of a long chapter, and I'd encourage you to read it later this afternoon if you've got time. I want to give you just the the quick version to locate this in context. Jesus, at the beginning of the chapter, has performed this remarkable miracle. He's been out teaching, and people grow hungry, and, and there's no place to get food. And so it's one of those occurrences where he multiplies the food and he feeds the throngs, as it were. And they're wowed. And we realize there, we're told at the beginning of the chapter, uh, that there's enough for all and that there's more left over still. And Jesus then goes across the lake with his disciples and the crowd realizes pretty quickly that he's not around 
And so they realize that he must have gone across the lake and they too pursue him across the lake and they confront him with questions and Jesus is engaging the crowd, teaching them further. And then we learn of some folks that aren't the disciples and they're not the crowd, they're identified as the Jews, not all the Jews, but some select group of the Jews who are raising objections. They're trying to stump Jesus in some way. They're trying to find him out in an error, it seems. And by the end of the chapter, verse 59 will tell us that Jesus is in Capernaum in the synagogue and he's been addressing these skeptics, these folks who are raising objections to him. And so there's a number of conversations along the way and they're all rooted in this first great act of multiplying the food, of feeding the crowds. Now, it's important to remember that this isn't the first time that food has been provided in remarkable ways. In fact, Jesus here in the verses before you alludes to an earlier time. He's pointing back to what we read of in Exodus 16. In Exodus there, God has freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He's defeated the army of the Egyptians that's pursuing them. He's opened up the Red Sea so that they can go through. He's taking them on the way to Sinai so that they can receive a new constitution and be formed as a new people for God's own sake, that they can meet with him and worship him and adore him. So much is good. The problem, of course, is they're in the wilderness. There there is no Publix in the wilderness. There is no fertile land to go, uh, you know, sow and harvest in the wilderness, And so they're in a real dilemma here. And Exodus 16 describes how God provides pastries from on high. There's bread that shows up coming down from heaven and landing on the ground every morning. And this, this bread is known as manna, provision of God. And in Exodus 16, God teaches them about how they're to receive this manna. We learn a number of things. There's Enough for all, Exodus 16, 18 says, so that they don't need to worry about getting some lest others take it and you not have enough. No, there's enough for everybody. There's provision enough for the least and the greatest among the Israelites. But the manna goes bad by the next morning. If you try and hoard it, if you try and store it, it goes bad, gets moldy, the flies show up. It's not a pretty picture. And so there's enough for all, but it's not lasting. And here Jesus reminds us that those who ate of it, they still died. They still died. It was a gift. It was a remarkable miracle. But it wasn't ultimately successful, we could say. Here we come to John 6. And Jesus, like God in the Old Testament, is performing this miracle and he's providing food because there's not a Publix around and there's not an occasion to get food by other means. But it's fascinating that the provision of God that was good in the Old Testament is now great in the New Testament. Here in John 6, it's not merely that there is food for all, but that there's abundance for all, according to verses 11 and 12. And it's not merely the case that there's a food enough for this day, but here the food doesn't fade and it can actually be stored up. Verses 12 and 13 describe how the bread can be gathered into baskets and saved for later. It doesn't go bad. It's comparing this miracle to that of Exodus 16 and it's pointing out that it's greater and that it's longer lasting. 
what can we learn from how Jesus unpacks, how Jesus explains this new and greater miracle of providing bread for the journey? I think there's two implications here. The first implication that we can learn about who God is, it can be said in a number of ways. Verse 48, I'm the bread of life. Verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Verse 55, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Bread, food, is a provision that sustains you. It is a gift or an acquisition that is all about maintenance. It doesn't give you life. It doesn't start or initiate your life, but it sustains your life. When God speaks of providing bread, God is promising that he doesn't just start our lives as creatures or as Christians. He's saying that he also provides what we need to be sustained. And that's no small thing. Imagine somebody who is surprised to learn that they have received a remarkable gift from some Uh, relative or friend's estate. They have been given in their will a oceanside mansion. It's beautiful. It's a million-dollar home. It's gorgeous. They could never afford to buy that for themselves. And it's a remarkable place, and they can imagine uh, spending weekends there. They can imagine vacationing there. They can imagine sharing it with others. And then they get then they get the insurance bill and the tax bill. And they realize that while it's remarkable that they've been given a million-dollar home, they can't afford the maintenance of it. They're ordinary folks. They can't afford the tens of thousands of dollars that are going to be spent insuring this thing against hurricanes and paying uh, the, the property tax on it. And, and actually, this gift proves to be Something that that undoes their finances. That in trying to keep it, in trying to use it, it actually wrecks their budget. Right? It's not enough simply to start in a strong way and to have resources at the beginning of something. It's crucial to have resources to sustain and maintain it. To last. And to last well. And here we see in a variety of ways God saying, God provides bread. How easy is it for us to think that God acts at the beginning of the Christian life? How frequent is it that we think God intervened in a remarkable way, maybe years ago, maybe months ago, when I became a Christian? And and to easily assume from that that now God has done that, he's sort of injected us with a new power or he's acted powerfully on our behalf, changing our status, and now it's up to us to show gratitude and sort of pay him back. He's done his work, and now we're kind of living off the interest at best. No, God, God provides bread. God is just as gracious in providing bread for the journey as he is gracious in freeing us from slavery, in raising us from the dead, in forgiving us our sins. And so it's not a small thing this morning that as we come to God, we we don't simply come to God confessing sin, but also lamenting the ordinary everyday struggles of life. That is a part 
of the journey of faith, that we realize that God cares and God acts all along the way, and so we can speak to Him of those things. It's also not surprising here, given that God provides bread for the journey, that He sustains us along the way, that verse 37, just before our passage, says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. Or, maybe more powerfully, he goes on to say, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day, in verse 39. Jesus doesn't just start a church, but he keeps and shepherds a church. He sustains the Christian life with his blessing. He doesn't just create you as the sort of person who has a belly, but he fills it with bread. He gives you nutrition and sustenance. There's a second implication here, though. It's not simply that that God is gracious to us along the way and not just at the beginning, but it's also that God is gracious to us in wanting to provide more abundant, more blessed things than we dare imagine. Verse 27, earlier in the passage, we read this, "'Don't work for the food that perishes.'" but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. It's this comparison with the manna provided in Exodus. That's food that doesn't endure. It's necessary. It's daily bread. It gets you to tomorrow, but it doesn't endure and it doesn't deliver eternal life. And perhaps the greatest facet of God's gift-giving is not merely that He provides abundantly, for our worldly, earthly, daily concerns, but that He is ultimately giving us Himself. He is ultimately filling us up with nothing other than Himself. There are lots of people involved philanthropically who are happy to provide resources over there but would never dare get personally involved. How different is that from what we see described of God here, that God longs above all else to provide nothing short of himself to us, to be with us. Jesus isn't simply the son of man who comes to reign. He's not simply the son of God who comes to be the true king, but he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He wants to fill us up by providing us that greater gift. And this too is something that oftentimes comes in surprising ways. Those of you who are involved in community groups, you'll know that one of our regular rhythms that we do every so often is what we call character-focused prayer, where we gather together and we talk through things going on in our lives, and we do that not so much to ask that God would fix circumstances, though that's not a small thing, but that in discussing together and in thinking scripturally, we might be led by God to see what God is doing in and with and under those circumstances, in us and in those around us. In what ways is God giving himself to me as I go through circumstances that sometimes aren't fun and sometimes are chronic, sometimes don't seem to be changed, don't seem to be transformed on the veneer, but actually As I discuss it with sisters and brothers, as we look at Scripture, as we pray to God, I see God is actually present in a powerful way, in a way that's more blessed than if it had been removed. And so, 
a rhythm like character-focused prayer together is, is really rooted in this deep assumption that God wants to give us greater things than we know to ask. I know to ask, remove the sickness. I know to ask, provide enough for the end of the month and the bills being paid. I don't always know how to ask that God would give more of himself to me, that he would expand my heart, that I might love him more, that I'd have eyes to see him in gratitude more, that I'd I'd have eyes to see his presence at work, that I'd have eyes to see opportunities around me, that someone's not cranky, but there's someone who's a gift to be received and a person to be loved. And so all of that, that rhythm and that practice that we throw ourselves into as a community of communities, that's built on this idea that God wants to do more than we can imagine. God wants to provide a greater bread We saw that often in our benediction this fall as we worked through Ephesians. You may remember from the end of chapter 3, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. He's able to do far more abundantly than all that I might ask or imagine. So two implications of what this says about God, that He is our bread, and that He longs to give us the bread of life, living bread, His own very self. What does this tell us, secondly, though, about who we are? I want to talk about what we could call the spirituality of the stomach. What does it mean to be a human being in Christ Jesus? What does this passage say about how we can live authentically into the way in which we've been designed? What does this reveal? We might kick against it. We might dislike it. We might be offended by it. But what does this say about who we really are, what our nature is? It's crucial to note, eating and drinking have significance around the world, right? I I venture to guess, I'm not a gambler and I'm not a prophet, but if you were to think about some of the most... uh, difficult memories of middle school, and most of us only have difficult memories of middle school, how many of them circle around the cafeteria and where you do or don't sit? If you were to think about ongoing frustrations in your family, among friends, how often is it as we sit around tables at holidays or on significant occasions when somebody ventured sort of to say that and the whole thing went chaotic, right? Uh, or when people wouldn't speak to each other, or someone wasn't present and their absence was so palpable, right? That feels so sharp because meals are significant. And that's not simply true of our culture, that's true around the globe, and that's true through the centuries. And that's why Jews and Christians now have for centuries taken mealtime as an opportunity to pray to God, to express thanks to Him. I may have cooked it, A server may have brought it to my table, but I nonetheless observe that it's truly ultimately a gift from God. And so a meal is a great reminder of how every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, right? That's why mealtime prayers are so global and so significant because they they really do latch into something that is absolutely central to us. That being said... We sure can mangle food, can't we? I mean, we really, really can mess up our relationship to food. 
And it's not just what Ben was describing earlier as we think about diet, nutrition, and so forth, but simply look at the text before us. Um, Some in this context have doubted that Jesus could have really provided food for this crowd. They doubt the heavenly origin of the food. Uh, They don't believe him to be strong and powerful, we read in verses 41 and 42. Earlier in the chapter, in verses 26 and 27, some people showed greater concern for daily bread, for the, the fish and the bread, than for Jesus himself. They were far more taken with the glitz of the meal than with the one who's preparing it and giving himself to them at the meal, sharing the table with them. You look back to Exodus. In the telling of Exodus 16, some are hoarding the manna and it goes bad. Others are griping that God miraculously provides, but amazingly, the menu is the same every day and they'd rather go back to Egypt where there was variety on the table, even though it was the house of slavery. We can easily mangle food in all sorts of ways, can't we? Well, what does this passage tell us about how to rightly eat, how to rightly approach God? What is the spirituality of the stomach that's revealed here? Verse 58 says this, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Our stomach reveals something significant about us. We are made and designed to depend on nutrients from the outside. You require caloric intake to keep going. You require food and water, renewed strength every so often to continue functioning in an optimal way. There is something absolutely significant about what it means to be a human, that being a human is being a dependent creature, not a self-sufficient, self-existent being, that we are those who live on borrowed breath. We have to take in oxygen constantly. That's true, not merely physiologically, but that's true of us spiritually at a much deeper level. And friends, we live in a a world that for a, a long while has often heard the message that, spiritually speaking, it's okay to have depended and been a creature before. As long as you had faith once, you're good to go. It's worth noting, though, whether you read this passage, John 6, or you read across the Scriptures, saving faith is always persevering faith. The Bible never describes and never commends the notion of believing that you can trust Jesus one day and then stop trusting and you're good, right? Um, Faith is described here as something that is ongoing. It's imperfect. It's a mixed bag because we're sinners and God provides ways where we confess and we return in faith even to be forgiven for the sin of not trusting well today, tomorrow, and so forth. But we are called to the journey of faith. We are called to continue eating just as much as I can't rely on the calories from last Sunday's lunch for this afternoon's energy. So I am called to depend on Jesus now. So I am called to entrust myself to God today. So I am called to lean into God in all days and circumstances so that 
you hear regularly us talking about this church seeking to, to cultivate whole life disciples. And a key element of that is that the very first thing that's true of a disciple, and that's true of a disciple across their whole life, is dependence on God and on God's grace. That there is not one nook or cranny of my life. There's not one area of my existence. There's not one day of my story, but that God doesn't want me to lean into him. And that my stomach reminds me of that. My need to continually be replenished reminds me of that. And so Jesus will go on in verse 56. He'll say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me abides in me, and I in him. And Jesus doesn't just tell us this. He demonstrates it. We read, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus shows us what it's like to be a dependent human being, listening to the will of God, obeying God, undergoing great suffering, but for the joy set before him, enduring it, and running the race set before him. And so the first application we see here of the second point is that the stomach tells us that spiritually speaking, we are called to dependence every day. The call to faith is not a one-time affair, but it's a matter of continually returning to God. Second application, and this one's a bit briefer. We read earlier in the chapter, verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Some come to him for nutrients. Some come to him there for a feast. He calls for what he calls the work of faith there, the labor of faith in verses 28 and 29. And it is a labor to believe that he is the greater gift. That can be challenging. There are billboards. There are banner ads There's word of mouth telling us about all the many things around us, all the glitzy new inventions that seem so enticing, all the obvious palpable needs that we observe that need to be filled, the PR department, the marketing team for the message that our greatest need is Emmanuel doesn't always seem so strong by comparison. It is a labor to trust that I not only need Jesus to provide me daily bread, but I need to be weaned off the notion that I would think that daily bread and earthly delight are my greatest good. And one of the things we see in this passage, one of the things that we're trained to see by reflecting on our stomach and our need for food is that Jesus longs to order those loves. He longs to train us away from McDonald's and toward filet mignon. He longs to deepen our longings. That's why we lament. Not just because God cares about today in this world as much as he cares about other things, but because my sense of what is wrong today needs to be recultivated. I have intuitions. Stuff happens. I observe it on the news. I encounter it in conversation. I have knee-jerk reactions and, and I can oftentimes observe in myself or around me, things aren't as they should be. And that might be right, but that doesn't mean that my sense of what's wrong is actually all that helpful or all that accurate. I can tell 
sometimes at least, when a song is discordant, when it's just not working musically. I can't explain any of that. And the degree to which I could actually feel that is so inferior relative to the great musicians we've got up here. Because they know music. They have a cultivated, refined sense of what it's meant to be, how it works, what its order is. Mine is pedestrian by comparison. I can sort of sense when something's not working, but I need to have it cultivated. I need to be trained. God gives us lament, psalms. God gives us prayers in the Bible so that we can increasingly actually want greater things. Not simply taking all things to Him, but going to Him increasingly for greater goods. And so we see here, in a couple different ways, the stomach and our hunger, our need, our dependence is meant to train us to think about faith. And isn't it interesting that what it means to be human and to trust maps right on to who God is, to what God is like. God provides for all circumstances, for the journey as well as the beginning. And so we are made to be the kind of creature who constantly comes back to him in trust and faith and dependence. God is the kind of God who wants to outdo our expectations and one-up our requests. And so not surprisingly, God makes us to be the kind of creature who's going to be guided and instructed to begin asking and desiring and anticipating greater heavenly goods. Who we are as the image of God maps on snugly to who God is. Because faith, faith or trust, belief, what we're talking about, is defined by its object by the one you lean into, by the one you depend on. Friends, your faith isn't valuable based on its ferocity, its emotional degree or level, its vigor and consistency. Your faith is valuable if it's faith in God. That's why faith itself isn't a universally good thing. When we say someone is trusting, we are not typically speaking well of them. We're suggesting they're gullible. They believe that which shouldn't be believed. They trust the person who shouldn't be trusted. Faith is as good and as effective as its object. And that's why it's appropriate that we begin to move here as we continue in worship, because it's here that we see someone who calls us to depend, who has proven his commitment has proven his power. He's not just multiplied food, but he's given himself as a sacrifice. He has real skin in the game, if ever anyone did. Luther and others throughout the Christian tradition have talked about how John 6 is all about the Lord's Supper. And while it's probably not true, it is certainly true that the Lord's Supper that we're going to be preparing for in the next few minutes is such a powerful picture of what we see described here of what it means to hunger and thirst for God, of what it means that God longs to fill us up abundantly. And so as we prepare for that, we want to prepare mindful of of who God is and what he's shown himself to be. And we want to do so mindful of who he's made us to be and what it would mean to grow mature and whole in every area of life. So let's turn in prayer. Lord, we remember the words of the psalmist that 
I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. And we confess that oftentimes we don't like to depend. We don't like to ask for help. We, we think we must have grown out of that. We should have grown out of that. And we forget that you're a God who longs to provide not just baptism and a beginning to our Christian life, but a God who gives us a table and who gives us food and drink that we might be sustained and strengthened for each and every day. Help us to live in and lean in to our creatureliness. Help us to live in and lean into your goodness. Help us to find that in that humility and faith, in that prayer and that dependence, is our true joy and happiness, because that's where you are. This we pray in the name of Jesus, who is the bread of life. Amen.